Hello, I'm Paul Marino. I'm the William and Bernice Grucock Chair in American Constitutional History at Hillsdale College. And today I'll be talking about civil rights and reconstruction. Uh, after the Civil War was over, the goal of the Republican uh, administration was to restore the Union to get the former rebel states back into the Union, and also to protect the rights of the uh, four million newly emancipated slaves, uh, the freedmen. And that was a very difficult uh, project uh, to reconcile those two uh, interests, to deal with the question of race relations uh, in the former uh, Confederate states. And it centered on the question of the status of the former freedmen, uh, what would be their status as citizens. So when we talk about civil rights, uh, those are the rights that appertain to people who are citizens. In the 19th century, Americans understood rights in a hierarchical fashion. Uh, the most fundamental rights that people had, what we would today call uh, human rights, uh, were, were natural rights, rights that you had as a human being. And it was slavery that violated the fundamental principles of natural justice and natural rights. And so it was certain that with slavery being abolished, that the former slaves, the freedmen, had natural rights. But the question was, how could we secure those rights? And would the former slaves be citizens of the United States? Uh, and have, have civil rights. Beyond that was the question of uh, political rights, as you could be a citizen without having, say, the right to vote or serve on a jury or in the militia, uh, things like that. Women, for example, uh, were considered citizens but were not political, uh, did not have political rights. And beyond that were what were considered social rights, uh, when you talked about things like access to restaurants and theaters and what were called places of public accommodation, uh, would be sort of the, the, the highest level of rights. But the real question was uh, the question of, of civil rights or the rights of citizens. As the Constitution did not define uh, who was a citizen or what civil rights were, although it uses the word citizen on uh, several, uh, several occasions. For instance, uh, members of Congress have to be citizens of their states uh, for a certain number of years. And there wasn't much background on this question of what is it that defines uh, who is a citizen and what their uh, civil rights are. Uh, one of the last questions, uh, one of the last statements about this by the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case uh, was very emphatic that blacks, whether they were free or slaves, were not citizens of the United States. Uh, that's really what the Dred Scott case was all about. Uh, even a free black American could not have access to the federal courts, could not sue in federal courts because only citizens uh, could bring suit in federal courts. And Justice Taney in the Dred Scott decision said that black Americans were never U.S. citizens uh, and could not be U.S. citizens. They might be citizens of their states. And some states, like Massachusetts, for example, might even give them political rights, uh, like the right to vote. But no state could turn a free black person into a citizen of the United States. So the last word by the Supreme Court was that uh, blacks were not citizens uh, of the United States. Now, of course, uh, the Republican Party rejected the Dred Scott decision and uh, members of Congress acted during the Civil War as if blacks were citizens of the United States. 
uh, granting them passports, for example, and uh, uh, issuing patents uh, to them, things that were only available to uh, citizens of the United States. But when the um, new Congress came into session in 1865, and the question of the readmission of the former rebel states uh, was at issue, uh, they had to take up this, this, this question of whether blacks were citizens uh, of the United States. How could they secure their rights? Because the southern states, in the period between the end of the war in April 1865 and the new Congress convening in December of 1865, uh, enacted every southern state enacted a black code, as they were called, uh, trying to establish what, this, what the status of the former slaves were. And the black codes varied state by state, but in none of them were the former slaves given the same civil rights as whites. Uh, there were always some qualifications and disabilities uh, that blacks uh, labored under in the uh, black codes. They weren't, in many cases, allowed to have firearms, for example. Uh, certain occupations were closed to them, or they weren't allowed to own real estate. Uh, vagrancy laws were applied to the former slaves in a way that were really intended to restore them as close as possible uh, to the, the pre-war situation of slavery. So the Northern Republicans were uh, quite taken aback at the unwillingness of the Confederates to deal equally and fairly with the former slaves and would not allow the rebel states back into the Union unless they did, uh, again, treated the, the former slaves uh, more fairly. And so they had to take up this question of, you know, how do we guarantee the civil rights of black Americans? Now, there was very little uh, to, to, to go on. The Constitution, as I said, didn't say much about uh, what defines citizenship and civil rights. And there was really only one uh, federal court case that addressed this question. Uh, it was back in 1823, and it was an opinion by Justice Bushrod Washington, who was George Washington's uh, nephew, uh, who was on the court. And it wasn't even a Supreme Court case. It was uh, Washington acting as a circuit court judge. And it was a relatively insignificant case, which involved the law of the state of New Jersey that restricted taking oysters from the oyster beds of New Jersey only to New Jersey citizens. And this raised the question of, uh, did it violate the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the Constitution? Uh, Article 4 of the Constitution says that uh, the citizens of each state shall be entitled to all privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states. Uh, and Alexander Hamilton in the Federalist Papers said this provision was absolutely essential. It was the, the cement of the Union, the idea that we were all citizens of the, uh, of the same country. But again, the Constitution did not define what privileges and immunities were. So Justice Washington in this uh, case uh, took up that question and said, the inquiry is, what are the privileges and immunities of citizens in the several states? We feel no hesitation in confining these expressions to those privileges and immunities which are, in their nature, fundamental, which belong of right to the citizens of all free governments, and which have, at all times, been enjoyed by the citizens of the several states which compose this union. From the time of their becoming free, independent, and sovereign, what these fundamental principles are, he said, it would perhaps be more tedious than difficult to enumerate. They may, however, be all comprehended under the following general heads. Protection by the government, the enjoyment of life and liberty with the right to acquire and possess property of every kind and to pursue and obtain happiness and safety. Subject, nevertheless, to such restraints as the government may justly prescribe for the general good of the whole. The right of a citizen of one state to pass through or to reside in any other state for purposes of trade, agriculture, professional pursuits, or otherwise to claim the benefit of the writ of habeas corpus, to institute and maintain actions of any kind in the courts of the state, 
to take hold and dispose of property, either real or personal, and an exemption from higher taxes or impositions than are paid by citizens of the state may be mentioned as some of the particular privileges and immunities of citizens, which are clearly embraced by the general description of privileges deemed fundamental, to which may be added, Washington said, the elective franchise as regulated and established by the laws or constitution of the state in which it is to be exercised. These and many others which might be mentioned are the privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states. So that's what the, uh, the 39th Congress that was addressing this question uh, had to work on. How do we guarantee these privileges and immunities uh, to, the, to the former slaves uh, and to overturn the, uh, the Black Codes? Uh, how do we give force to the Privileges and Immunities Clause? And the Congress did this in the Civil Rights Act of 1866. This is really the cornerstone of uh, Americans identifying who is a citizen and what their rights are. Uh, when we get to the 14th Amendment, it, that amendment is best understood as an attempt to make permanent the provisions of the uh, Civil Rights Act of 1866. Uh, this was uh, an act of the moderate Republicans in Congress. It was largely the work of Senator Lyman Trumbull of Illinois, and it was passed with the understanding that by the 13th Amendment, by abolishing slavery, essentially made the, the freedmen slaves and gave Congress the power to secure their rights. So this Civil Rights Act was passed in uh, April of 1866, and it began just as the 14th Amendment does, saying that all persons born in the United States and not subject to any foreign power, excluding Indians not taxed, are hereby declared to be citizens of the United States. And such citizens of every race and color, without regard to any previous condition of slavery or involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime, shall have the same right in every state and territory of the United States. So the, the idea that black Americans now, the, the, the former slaves, the freedmen, are declared to be citizens. And they have the same right to make and enforce contracts, to sue, be parties, and give evidence, to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property, and to full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings for the security of person and property, as is enjoyed by white citizens and shall be subject to like punishment, pains, and penalties, and to none other, any law, statute, or ordinance, regulation, or custom, to the contrary notwithstanding. So essentially, it says that the former slaves are citizens and that they have these fundamental civil rights, most of which are about uh, uh, property, right? About contract, the right to make and enforce contracts is central to this because that's exactly what slavery violated. Uh, the idea that you had to labor for somebody without any compensation, uh, that you were not able to enforce uh, the, the right to the fruits of your labor. Now the former slaves would have the ability to make contracts, usually with their uh, former owners, to labor for them, and would be guaranteed that they would be paid for that, and that if they weren't, they would have access to the courts in which uh, they could enforce their rights. So essentially, this would enable the former slaves to be self-governing citizens, able to take care of themselves by having access uh, to, the, to the legal system. Section two of the, um, uh, of the act went on to say that uh, state actors who violated these civil rights could be punished. And the section three also provided in a way that uh, gave the former slaves access to the federal courts if they could not get justice in the state courts. So now the federal government was going to be involved in the protection of civil rights in a way that they had not been before uh, the Civil War. So the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was essential to the uh, uh, securing the uh, civil rights of the former slaves. 
Uh, President Andrew Johnson vetoed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, and this was the beginning of the break between um, Andrew Johnson, who had been uh, before the war a Democrat. Uh, he was the uh, only senator from a Confederate state, Tennessee, who remained loyal to the Union. And so he was made uh, Lincoln's vice presidential candidate as a, as a sign of sort of uh, bipartisan wartime unity. Uh, in 1864. Uh, he was very hostile to the former rebels, but he was also uh, very hostile to the former slaves. And beginning with this, his break with the Republican Party, uh, Johnson became associated with the uh, former Confederates and began to be an obstacle to the, uh, even to the moderate uh, Republicans of the kind who passed the Civil Rights Act. Uh, but the veto was overridden. This was the first time in American history that any significant uh, presidential veto had been overridden. And now, essentially, uh, uh, policy was going to be made principally by Congress. Uh, this is the beginning of congressional rather than presidential uh, reconstruction. And uh, this is what takes us also to the, so, uh, to the 14th Amendment, uh, which was an attempt to make permanent the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1866. Because the, the problem that the Republicans in Congress had, especially the moderates, was they could not keep the Confederate states out of the Union forever. The American people wanted the Union restored. And the whole question of Reconstruction was how much would be different from uh, before the war began. People like Johnson and the conservatives wanted as, as little as possible to change. That slavery was over and the 13th Amendment had been uh, ratified in December of 1865. But we want the former rebel states back into the Union and everything to be uh, just, just about as much as possible as it was before the war. Uh, the Constitution as it is and the Union as it was was there phrase, so that Reconstruction would be very, very minimal. The radicals, on the other hand, wanted to keep the former uh, rebel states out of the Union and under federal control for as long as possible. They wanted a thoroughgoing political and social transformation of the South. Things like uh, land redistribution, a, a kind of reparations program uh, for the former slaves was what the radicals wanted. But the center of gravity politically were the moderate Republicans. Uh, this is where Abraham Lincoln was. Uh, he was chosen as the nominee of the party in 1860 because he was a moderate uh, Republican. And again, people like Lyman Trumbull and the Civil Rights Act of 1866 represent their policy. But uh, the time is limited. And they also know that once the former slave states come back into the Union, it's very likely that the Democratic Party will return to its position as the dominant political party. Uh, before 1860, they were the majority party throughout uh, the previous couple of decades of American history. The Whig Party, their rival, won very few elections, very rarely uh, controlled national policy. So the problem was you could enact the Civil Rights Act, but then once the rebel states come back into the Union, even if you give blacks the right to vote, Whites are a majority in just about every Southern state so that the white Democrats will sooner or later take control again of the Southern states and probably of the national government, and they could simply repeal the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So the 14th Amendment was an attempt to make permanent the Civil Rights Act of uh, 1866. Constitutional amendments, too, can be repealed, but it's much more difficult to, uh, to, to arrive at the supermajorities that are required for that. So the 14th Amendment is essentially the, really was the, the peace treaty that would end uh, the Civil War. Uh, the former rebel states were told that if they ratified the 14th Amendment, that would be their, their ticket back to uh, admission into Congress. Uh, the Republicans had barred the uh, uh, Confederate senators and representatives in December of 1865 because uh, not only was, were the black codes uh, offensive to the Republicans, but the southern states chose many prominent former rebels like Alexander Stevens, 
uh, was was going to be the senator from Georgia, and he had been the vice president of the of the Confederacy. So, uh, this if they were Southern states were willing to agree to the protections of the freedmen in Section One of the Fourteenth Amendment, that would be the way that they could get back uh, into Congress. The rest of the Fourteenth Amendment settled uh, other issues that were uh, hanging from the uh, Civil War. Section one is the heart of the Fourteenth Amendment. Uh, today, it's the most important part of that amendment. And it is, it begins with language that is almost identical to the Civil Rights Act of 1866, that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. So it puts aside uh, any lingering doubts about Congress's power to make citizens of the former freedmen. It sets to rest permanently the Dred Scott uh, dictum that free blacks were not citizens of the United States. And it finally defines for us who is a citizen. It's often referred to as birthright citizen. Although the question of uh, being subject to the jurisdiction thereof, uh, the contemporary question about, uh, say, you're in the country illegally and your children are born here, does Section 1 of the 14th Amendment therefore make you a citizen? Uh, that's a question for another, another occasion. Uh, Section 1 goes on to say, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. So this is giving force to Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, the original Privileges and Immunities uh, Clause, saying that the states cannot uh, violate, cannot abridge the privileges and immunities. And again, that takes us back to Corfield against Coriel and the Civil Rights Act itself, uh, which were defining what are privileges and immunities. Nor shall any state deprive any person, not just citizens, but any person, of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, the, the, the due process clause, as it's called, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. This language, these three uh, central pillars of Section 1, privileges and immunities, due process, and equal protection, uh, could have amounted to really an entirely new constitution. They're very broad. Uh, they would end up being very open-ended. And judges, especially over the course of the next 150 years, would find here plenty of material to protect uh, rights that they thought uh, were fundamental. Uh, in the late 19th century, these ended up being not very effective protections for the rights of the freedmen, principally because of the language that, uh, that it uses, that no state shall violate these rights, uh, the so-called state action provision, that the 14th Amendment ended up being very weak at protecting the former uh, freedmen against private actors, uh, the Ku Klux Klan, for example, or conspiracies among whites to deprive blacks uh, of their rights. Only if the state itself was involved would the 14th Amendment uh, have much uh, potential. But this language, though, would end up in the 20th century, especially, uh, applicable to lots of other situations, the Due Process Clause in particular. A uh, hundred years ago, the Supreme Court would use the Due Process Clause principally to protect uh, business freedom. Uh, in the fam famous or infamous Lochner case, for example, in 1905, it struck down a law under the Due Process Clause, uh, a New York law that limited the number of hours that, that bakers uh, could work. Uh, more recently, the Due Process Clause uh, protecting the liberty of uh, abortion, especially. Uh, this is the basis for homosexual marriage in the 21st century. So these provisions of the 14th Amendment ended up being very, very manipulable, very pliable, and applicable to all sorts of, of interests other than the, the former slaves. But the initial uh, intent of Section 1 of the 14th Amendment was to guarantee the rights of the former slaves. It's worth noting, too, though, there is nothing racially specific about this, right? It, it only refers to citizens and persons, not, nothing uh, racially specific. So this is meant to protect 
protect the rights of everybody. Uh, for instance, before the Civil War, uh, abolitionists, white abolitionists, were deprived of their rights to protest against slavery in the southern states. And a lot of uh, uh, Republicans in Congress had memories of the mistreatment of white abolitionists. Section 1 was meant to protect uh, their rights as well. So this is to make permanent the protection of, to define what civil rights are and to make permanent uh, their protection. Uh, Section 2 of the 14th Amendment addressed the question of voting rights, right? Uh, Again, you could be a citizen without having the right to vote. Uh, Women, for instance, not having, uh, uh, were considered citizens, but not, uh, did not have uh, political rights. And the question of whether the former slaves should have the right to vote was very divisive for the Republicans. Most northern states did not allow blacks the right to vote, except uh, the states of New England were about the only ones uh, that did. And white northerners weren't eager to extend the right to vote uh, to blacks. In states like Michigan and Connecticut that had the opportunity to amend their constitutions to give blacks the right to vote, uh, decided not to do that. So Section 2 very indirectly told the southern states, you can deprive blacks of the right to vote, but you will lose proportionally your representation in Congress uh, if, you, if you do so. So it's a backhanded kind of way of getting blacks the right to vote in the South without giving them the right to vote in the North. Uh, it didn't work, and eventually the 15th Amendment would be added to this as a way of giving blacks uh, the right to vote. Section 3 had to do with the former leaders of the Confederacy, uh, the former rebels. Uh, and they were excluded from participating in political life if they took an oath to support the Constitution before the war and then violated uh, that oath. This was essentially Abraham Lincoln's policy about dealing with the former rebels. Uh, it also, the amendment also gave Congress the power to lift that restriction, uh, that they could uh, reestablish the right to participate, the former rebels. And by the end of the 19th century, they had done so for uh, all of the former rebels. And Section 4 had to do with the uh, debt of the Civil War, that the Union debt would not be questioned, uh, that about $2 billion that had been borrowed to pay for the war would be paid back, but that none of the Confederate debt, the debt that had been taken on by the Confederate states to pay for the war, could be paid back, nor would there be any compensation for uh, the loss of slaves. So the 14th Amendment was the, the package, again, that would get the former Confederate states back into the Union. Andrew Johnson, though, told the former uh, rebel states to reject it. And every former rebel state, except for Tennessee, his own state, did uh, fail to ratify uh, the 14th Amendment. Johnson told the former rebels in the midterm elections in 1866, uh, I'll return a more friendly Congress and I will give you better terms than the Republicans are offering you in the 14th Amendment. As a result, uh, the uh, 10 of the former Confederate states rejected the 14th Amendment. In fact, uh, Democrats throughout the country, there was only one state representative in in, uh, New York who voted to ratify uh, the 14th Amendment. As a result, this took the Reconstruction Program to its next phase, the so-called radical or military Reconstruction Program, where the southern states, having failed to ratify the 14th Amendment, would be more thoroughly reconstructed with new constitutions and new political systems, including black suffrage, imposed upon them uh, by the Congress. And uh, uh, this this phase of Reconstruction, beginning with the uh, 1867 Act, through the so-called the readmission of these former rebel states uh, to Congress by 1868-1870 and ending with their redemption or the restoration of the white Democratic Party to control of the southern states uh, by by 1876. So this is the next phase of Reconstruction that we can take up in our next episode. (laughs) 